Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. Everyone, um, good to uh, be here with you. As you, many of you know, I am a partner at Holland and Knight. I am currently the co-chair of the environmental and energy law section of the BBA, and I'm really thrilled to bring together four professionals who will talk about the recent amendments to the MCP, the Massachusetts Contingency Plan, as they relate to climate change. First, we have Ken Mara, who joined the Mass DEP in 1997. He is currently the acting director division of policy and program development of the Bureau of Waste Site Cleanup. Many of you, I'm sure, know Ken already. Next, we will have Marilyn Wade, who is the engineering manager at Brown and Caldwell. She's an LSP and PE as well. Next, after that, we'll have Kathy Rockwell. She is an environmental remediation technical manager and senior professional at Woodard and Curran, and also a PE. And last but not least is Ted Wickwire, who's the senior scientist and applied ecology team lead at Woods Hole Group, where he works on integrating climate vulnerability assessment and adaptation into ecological risk assessments. All of these folks have been members of the LSPA Climate Change Subcommittee, where I also am a member. And we have been working for the last mm, quite a long time, year or more, to come up with a toolkit in anticipation of the regulatory changes related to climate change. And so to present those uh, tools and the rationale, I will turn it over, start with Ken, and we'll go through the presentation. Thanks, everyone. Please put your Q&A questions into the Q&A portal. We will take questions at the end. There's a lot to cover, so without further ado, I'll turn it over to Ken. Thank you. Okay, thanks, Dan. Um, again, I'm Ken Mara from MassDEP's Bureau of Waste Site Cleanup. And yep, that's a good slide, no backup. First slide, <laughs> I'm gonna be talking about the, the regulatory approach um, that we're using to address climate change at, at, at waste sites um, following the Massachusetts contingency plan. And when we first talk about this, one of the first questions we get is how did we come to, be, to actually regulate uh, into the, the cleanup regulations? How did we come to regulate and insert climate change regulations into those? Into those? Um, the first thing, next slide, please. The first thing is that no matter what you think about climate change is that there's really only two ways to deal with it. You can mitigate it or reduce the greenhouse gas emissions, or you can adapt to it. And that's where the terms resilience and vulnerability come in. And that's the focus of this presentation today. And it's also the focus of the regulation changes that are gonna be coming into effect in 2024. Uh, next slide, please. So how did we get there to actually regulating the, the, the climate change into the cleanup regulations? So it all begins in 2008 um, with the Global Warming Solutions Act, which set emission reduction targets. We were one of the, Massachusetts was one of the first states to actually do that. 
And that was followed up eight years later in 2016 when Governor Baker signed Executive Order 569. And that for the first time used the, uses the terms assess vulnerability and increase resilience. In 2017, the Municipal Vulnerability Preparedness or MVP program was started, which provides financial and technical support for cities and towns. And then in 2018, following the issue of $2.4 billion of environmental bond debt, um, the Executive Office of Envi Energy and Environmental Affairs published the State Hazard Mitigation and Climate Adaptation Plan, otherwise known as the SHIMCAP. And that is the fundamental benchmark guiding light document that, that every agency under the under EOEA follows um, regarding climate change. Within it, um, there are a few requirements that, that affected DEP directly. One was the requirement to review our regulations. And then there was specific mention of 21E specific uh, site assessments or the MCP. And that's what led to inserting um, into the 2019 draft MCP amendments um, provisions for climate change. Those amendments were drafted in 2019. It took several years for everything to become final because there were lots of other things in these amendments, um, but they will become effective on March 1st of 2024. Um, next slide, please. Um, when back in 2019, when we first were considering how we're gonna do this and what we're gonna actually put into the MCP, the goal was, there were two goals. One was to identify and assess the foreseeable climate impacts that may affect the permanency and protectiveness of, the, of cleanup at, very, at vulnerable sites. And the second is to take reasonable measures to reduce these vulnerabilities. And I'm not sure how many of you are familiar with the MCP. I'm assuming at least some of you are. Um, but there's three places in the MCP, only three places in the MCP where this actually um, was written in. The first is in the definition of the conceptual site model or CSM. The second place is in under the response action performance standard or the professional standards that LSPs follow, uh, otherwise known as RAPS. And then third in the permanent solution uh, section under the definition of foreseeable period of time for a permanent solution. So next slide, please. So this is the first citation in the reg under the definitions of the conceptual site model. Um, it per now provides a dynamic framework for assessing current and foreseeable future site characteristics and risk. And that's a subtle but uh, but direct way to uh, to insert future considerations, which include climate change. Uh, next slide, please. And this is the response action performance standard or RAPS. Um, there's a reference right up front to 40.1005, which is the permanent solution part, which I'll get to in a minute. But then under, uh, under uh, paragraph two, um, it requires the consideration of relevant policies and guidelines issued by the department and EPA, and we've added and EOEEA. Again, they're the leadage agency that we follow. They, they're the ones who released the SHIMCAP, and they're the ones who, whose direction and lead we're following. And then the second place under subparagraph B is perhaps now requires the use of accurate and up-to-date methods, standards, practices, equipment, technologies, and the word models. Um, for the first time, we stuck that in there. It mean, doesn't just mean groundwater modeling. Um, it means these fancy um, uh, forecasting models that are used to, to, to predict climate impacts. And those, those are, are, they're always changing and evolving and whatever the latest and greatest state-of-the-art models are, are the ones that we, that we are now required to be using. Uh, next slide. 
And then the finally in the third paragraph of, of the response action performance standard, it actually spells it out that it's required to consider response actions that incorporate climate change resilience to the extent practicable, practicable and consistent with response action requirements. Um, so there's where the words climate change actually appear in the MCP, and it only appears in one more place. Next slide, please. And this is under the, the, the section talking about foreseeable period of time for purposes of, of a permanent solution, um, which now must requires is required to consider existing site conditions and reasonably foreseeable future changes in site conditions, including anticipated impacts associated with climate change. So there it is. It's, it's explicit, direct. The words climate change consideration are in the MCP as a requirement. Um, it's very brief in terms of words, but it's very meaningful um, in terms of its significance. And next slide. And in terms of what exactly that means, I'm going to turn it over to Marilyn here now to talk about how uh, me and, and folks from MassDEP uh, joined up with folks from the LSPA Technical Practices Subcommittee and worked on for the last couple of years putting together a climate change toolkit, which Marilyn is going to kick off and talk about right now. So I'll turn it over to Marilyn. Great, and thank you, Ken. Um, so just to um, very briefly um, acknowledge, if you want to go to the next slide, um, Diane, um, as Ken mentioned, this was a collab, we did a, a couple years long collaborative effort um, led by Kathy Rocco and myself um, with participation from the state in terms of Ken and, uh, and Liz Callahan as well to try and come up with a toolkit that LSPs could use to do vulnerability assessments at MCP sites. And so I just stuck this slide in so you could see that it was, um, it was like over 20 people participating at any given time um, and just a really good collaborative effort. So, um, so how do we comply and what do we need to do? Um, you know, we determined that we needed to assess the vulnerability of the site, um, evaluate what potential impacts to the contaminants or the site characteristics might occur as a result of climate impacts, and then consider what options there are to mitigate. Um, most of this, or actually all of this toolkit is aimed at um, the first two of these objectives. And the third one to consider what options could be available to mitigate it are really site specific. So our toolkit does not address that piece of it. So um, first a quick definition of vulnerability since that's um, what we're primarily looking at. Um, vulnerability of a waste site, a disposal site under the MCP um, really means that you have to have two things in play exposure uh, to climate change and a particular sensitivity to that exposure in terms of the site characteristics. And for exposure to climate change, um, we looked specifically at um, what, what we call the big four because they're what are specifically called out in the SHIMCAP for um, us to be looking at. And this includes precipitation, um, sea level rise, uh, temperature changes and uh, extreme weather events. Um, ex you know, examples like precipitation, inland flooding, extreme drought, sea level rise, of course, um, has to look at coastal flooding and coastal erosion. Um, temperature pulls in rising temperatures, extreme temperatures, 
um, wildfire, wildfires um, and the effects that severe or significant temperature changes have on things like invasive species and, and um, survivability. And then extreme weather events, of course, hurricane storms, tornadoes, um, you know, classic nor'easters and that kind of thing. That's really what um, comes right out of the ShimCap and what our focus is in terms of the exposure to climate change. So the um, MCP climate change toolkit components included a glossary of terms. Um, for this, we um, basically combed the, the universe of different regulatory authorities and um, public interest um, publications globally that are working on, on climate change um, called through a whole lot of different um, different definitions for the climate change terms and added um, oh I'm sorry are you <laughs> Diane can you I, I thought you were keeping up with me we've got a few, a few more slides in apologies Oh, go back one. <laughs> Good enough, thanks. Um, so there is a there is a glossary of terms. I won't I won't go into it in, in too much depth here. Um, these are probably the key change ones. But uh, you know, long story short, we looked at definitions that would be applicable specifically to our narrow um, focus and need, which is which is hazardous waste site cleanups um, that have climate change uh, potential climate change effects. Um, I will also say that there is, um, um, uh, Diane, can you just go back to the last slide for just two seconds? Thanks. So there is a, a, a Q&A. Um, we polled the LSPA membership and asked them to submit um, questions that they might have about climate change as it relates to wayside cleanup. Um, we called all of those questions into you know, 20 or so that um, we thought were most important. Um, to have regulatory input on um, and shared those questions and some draft answers with, um, with Ken and, and Ken took them back to DEP and, and they have refined those and completed the answers to them. And so there will be an official Mass DEP Q&A document uh, coming out um, in the next several months. So um, that is an additional thing that we worked on as part of the toolkit, um, but it's a mass DEP document and it's going to be published by them shortly. Okay, now next slide. So these are um, some of some of the key terms that you'll you'll see us use here, but there are a lot more that go with how to talk about climate change. Um, and then there's a pretty thorough, well-researched um, glossary in, in our toolkit. So next one. Um, the next thing we did in, in terms of doing a toolkit, uh, part of the toolkit is that we felt like we all needed some kind of roadmap um, and came up with this flow chart, which sort of walks you through the questions you need to ask um, and, and what you need to produce in terms of an MCP deliverable um, as it relates to climate change. And I think I won't go through all these boxes, but I think the key point um, to notice here is that it's not necessarily a heavy lift um, or a burdensome undertaking. Um, you know, so if you look at the left-hand slide of this chart, if you, you know, had a, a site with a spill that could get cleaned up fairly simply to background concentrations, you know, then there's no future site climate vulnerability associated with it. 
And you wouldn't need to do anything other than just, you know, put a, those two sentences together somewhere in your conceptual site model description um, in whatever, you know, submittal you're doing in the MCP. Um, where it gets more complicated is, um, you know, where you have long-term um, presence or obligations um, associated with the set of containments at a site, you know, so if, if you're anticipating an AUL, um, if your site's in, in a hazard condition, um, if there's some requirement for long-term active O&M um, over time, because you're now looking at a foreseeable future years that could be you know, 20, 30, 50, 80, 100 um, years out into the future. Um, and so if there are components of your site and contaminants left in place, that's when you're having to look at that vulnerability really kicks in. Um, okay, next slide. So the next piece of our, our toolkit that we did was, was to come up with a checklist. And it's um, all told, I think like five or six pages long. Um, this is kind of the, the heart of how to look at um, the components of vulnerability, the exposure and the sensitivity. Um, and we set up a, a, a set of prompts really, and we divided them up into um, you know, categories that relate to what the ShimCat um, suggest that we do. So I won't, I won't go into detail too much here because Ted's gonna walk us through a case study to show you how this um, checklist can be applied. But basically, um, you know, looking at um, just basic site information, and then the the you know the big four climate impacts, um, the exposure considerations in terms of um, what your site um, you know physical and um, and um, contaminant um, impacts look like, and sensitivity considerations in terms of is it urban coastal. Um, in an environmental justice community, there's a bunch of a set of questions for you to look at um, how sensitive your site might be to possible climate changes. Um, and then um, just as a, a set of questions to prompt the LSP to, to not just look at the surface and, and consider whether, you know, things like significant uh, temperature changes over time is going to change the elevation of the water table and thus change um, groundwater um, response actions that you might have selected. So um, really it's a it's a big you know yes or no it's a simple checklist to go through but it, it gives the LSP who's preparing this vulnerability assessment a way to make sure they've covered all the topics that are anticipated. Next slide. Um, you know at the end of the checklist it really um, you know it, it prompts the LSP to say you know, is there likely to be or not likely to be or absolutely will be uh, climate change impacts um, for my particular site based on my answers to this checklist, set of checklist questions. And if that's the case, they need to go start building in possible mitigative measures to make yourself more resilient um, and address these potential impacts. Um, and, the, and the concept is that this would get the, the checklist can get attached to, um, you know, a phase three report or whatever submittal it's it's um, 
or whatever, you know, a synodal that LSB is, pre is preparing at the time and updating the conceptual site model um, to just confirm that they have addressed climate change as part of their, uh, as part of their conceptual site model process. Next. Um, and there was a lot of concern and a lot of the questions we got in from LSPs was, you know, does this require a site-specific study for every waste site kind of um, project that's out there um, that, that doesn't get cleaned up to background? And, and, you know, so we had to come up with a way to also illustrate that, that no, that um, sort of paired with the ShimCap is a whole lot of resources um, available to LSPs and the general public to look at the state of Massachusetts and what the changes in climate could look like uh, in the foreseeable future period of time. Mm -hmm. um, so to talk about what those resources are, I'll, let, I'll hand it over to Kathy Lapham. Thanks. Thanks, Marilyn. Good afternoon. Um, so in addition to the checklist and the glossary and the flow chart that Marilyn just walked through um, and that Ted will kind of step us through with the case study next, um, the team compiled the list of technical resources uh, that were used to pull together this the whole toolkit. Um, and this core list of technical resources are shown on this slide. Um, the Resilient Mass website really provides the core, um, the base of the climate change science that our team utilized. Um, and as you know, Marilyn walked through um, the checklist in that within that there's a series of questions related to um, the resilient mass website and the mapping tool which i'll pull up in a minute um and the majority of the tools are based out of mass um but i did want to just point out the work um which is more national based uh, by surf and itrc uh the itrc has a guidance document on sustainable resilient remediation um that's another good resource for uh understanding vulnerability um, and mitigation measures. So um, to focus on the mass resources, uh, on the next slide, um, within the Resilient Mass website, uh, there's a lot of great information. Um, there's this resource clearinghouse um, in the top left corner under that tools and data you can um, pull down. Within that, you there's a wide host of um, documents and, and information that can be um, dove into. Um, in addition, on this website, there's the link to the, the 2023 Resilient Mass Plan, uh, as well as the MVP program, the Municipal Vulnerability Preparedness, um, that's what the MVP stands for, uh, along with a, a number of other resources. Uh, but for our practitioners, for um, the LSPs and their team, uh, the mapping tool is a great resource um, and really kind of a key focus for the checklist um, that we've been able to integrate in there. And what's great about the relying on um, resilient mass is that, you know, whether it's a larger consulting firm or sole practitioner, um, it's it's available, it's publicly available um, for, for everyone. Uh, so on the next slide, I'm going to go through a few Quick slides just to show uh, the mapping tool. Uh, Ted will do a case specific one, uh, but here's a screenshot of the the state. Um, you can see on the left this legend. There's a number of different layers you can turn on and off. Uh, the blue outlines are showing currently showing the watersheds, uh, and then you can see in the gray outlines the individual municipalities um, and where they are. Uh, beneath on that on the left there on the legend, you can see some of the other. Uh, layers and topics that you can dive further into within your 
um, subject area. Uh, there's climate projections, coastal vulnerability, uh, you know, flood zones, et cetera. Um, so, so jumping in just to the next slide, Diane, um, we can look here. Here's an example. It's a zoom in. It's a uh, happens to be Swansea Mass. Um, and you can see on the left, this is specifically looking at the, the Massachusetts coastal flood risk model. Um, and it has clicked, basically you can look at a number of different timeframe scenarios. Um, in this particular one, it has 2030, 2050, and 2070. Uh, this We've snapped on the layer for the 2050 coastal flooding. And this is, um, and you have an option there, you can look at the the probability of um, 1% annual exceedance or 0.1%. So you can zoom in and, and look at these different layers. On the next slide, it, it adds the um, environmental justice blocks on there as well. Um, so the colors uh, are shown on the left there for minority, in, um, it's income-based or um, English isolation, or a combination of those. So another nice tool to be able to integrate the, the environmental justice aspect to it. Um, let's, so just diving in just to share a little bit more about the, so then how you can get into more of the data. So the next slide looks at precipitation and you can't see it very well, but in the background of it, it's specific to um, 2050 and um, the precipitation model. And what's nice about this is, you, you can be looking at the map and you can see the color codes, um, but if you wanted to dive in and actually see the data, um, you can click on it and this table, um, this box pops up. And so here we can look at um, what would be that that change, that modeled uh, change. Um, in this case, it's the percent um, change in precipitation. So here it's looking at, at this particular area it, in 2050, there's an 8.5% increase in precipitation. Um, and then you can even look at it by uh, season as well. So there's actually, there's a lot of information in this mapping tool. Uh, we just wanted to kind of give a quick blurb um, before we dive into the case studies. Um, I think, you know, just the real value is that it's, it's publicly available. Um, sure, you know, practitioners can use much more sophisticated models, but you know, for the work that um, DEP really want to focus on this um, this application because it's it's uh, you know the current proven science or the current science of today. <laughs> so, uh, with that, I'm gonna let Ted jump in and, and do a case study. Thanks, Kathy. Good afternoon, everybody. My name is Ted Wickwire, and uh, we decided as a group that a case study would be a really helpful way to kind of pull together the pieces of the toolkit and um, allow folks to see how at least our group would proceed through the process. Um, as was noted before, there is no, no set way that um, you need to proceed through the process, but we've just provided recommendations. Um, and so this is one of the case studies in the toolkit. There's another one as well. Uh, next slide, please. So the key steps uh, in the case study pro or in the uh, site analysis process is to look at the sensitivity and the vulnerability. The conceptual site model is going to, going to include things like the site history, physical and biological characteristics, hazardous waste use and response actions, and we'll draw on the map-based data visualizations that Kathy just uh, walked us through. 
And then the vulnerability piece um, will look through look at the things such as precipitation, sea level rise, flood maps, um, and temperature trends. Bring those both together, and you end up with an estimate of climate vulnerability for your site. Next slide, please. So the case study, um, I always start with a qualification, as I, some of you may be sitting in your office now looking out at this site. This is not a real site. Um, it's fictional. It's on Boston Harbor, so it's a useful um, site for kind of illustrating some of the different uh, data points that we might use at a site. So um, don't treat this as a real site. Um, so the site that we're, the case study that we're looking at is um, the location that you see here. Next slide, please. Some of the conceptual site model information, um, you can pull up historical maps. You can see that this site uh, was largely um, filled in to give room for other activities. Um, it's about approximately a five acre site. It's about five feet above sea level. Um, and the disposal site is within a mapped flood zone. As far as the hazardous waste history, we know that on January 4th, an underground storage tank was removed, it was rusted, and there was some uh, uh, non-aqueous phase liquid identified at the four to six foot depth. Um, it was determined that the El Napa was stable, wasn't mobile, and it was less than a half inch in thickness, and that it was infeasible, therefore, to remove. And a method three risk characterization concluded that the site achieved uh, uh, no significant risk. Next slide, please. So we're moving on to the vulnerability and we need to research this site on resilient mass. Again, focusing on the Shimcap Big Four, precipitation, sea level rise, temperature, and extreme weather. As uh, we discussed, one of the most challenging um, parts of the whole process is defining what foreseeable future really means for your site, your conditions. Uh, resilient mass provides a really uh, deep data set, looking at projections from 2030, 2050, 2070, and even out to 20, 2100. Obviously, the further out you move, the, the higher the uncertainty. And so the LSP is really charged with deciding what reasonably foreseeable means uh, for the site that they're looking at. In this case, a kind of a typical planning horizon that we would expect to find at most sites is maybe 30 years, but we encourage um, folks to take advantage of the, the rich data set and look out to other years to kind of bound some of the uncertainty around some of the decisions you might be making within that 30 year timeframe. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, so we're just going to step through some of the maps that we use for the site. You'll see the site there. In this case, uh, the first map is the precipitation, um, and it's a projection in 2050, and you can see that it shows the uh, percent projected percent change in that time frame for this location. We see that precipitation could mobilize the El Napple if it is increasing by elevating the groundwater surface. So this might be that this is one uh, factor in the vulnerability for this site. Next slide. Uh, next, we're looking at the uh, sea level rise scenario. So we're looking at um, 2050, the site is at five feet. Um, the map indicates that the sea level may increase by 2.4 by 2050. In that case, we're not seeing any, um, any impact to the site or the El Napo in that timeframe. So 
Next slide, we'll look at another um, step out. We'll look at 2100, and we see in that case that we do begin to see some, um, some potential impact. The prediction in, at that time year is 7.6 feet, um, and it may in inundate portions of the site. Therefore, the LNAPL may, may be vulnerable to sea level rise. Next slide. Uh, the next slide is temperature. Um, there are cases where temperature might be might have an impact on the vulnerability of the site. In this case, um, it's not not a factor. Uh, we've got most mostly pavement and landscape, um, and so the site is not expected to be impacted by uh, increase in temperature. Next slide. Uh, and this is the hurricane surge inundation zones uh, that help predict flooding of the site under hurricane conditions. Um, in this case, extreme weather flooding could mobilize um, the LNAPL. Um, so this is another, um, another potential vulnerability from this site. Next slide, please. And finally, the um, Massachusetts Coastal Flood Risk Model. Um, and in this case, looking at 2030, we see that um, the site is largely um, outside of the area that is, is vulnerable to flooding. But if we move to the next slide, look at 2050, we see that the um, that more of the site is falls within the 1% um, annual exceedance probability for flooding. And move to the next slide. And in 2070, we see even uh, even increased vulnerability. So um, there is a vulnerability to uh, flooding in the future. Next slide. Uh, and then you can also look at the FEMA flood insurance maps just to see, um, in general, the probabilistic modeling that we just looked at tend, tend to be more accurate, but it's always useful to know what FEMA um, is considering a hazardous condition at your sites. Uh, and this, all of this information that we just looked at comes through Resilient um, MA. Next slide. So now we've finished gathering all the data that we need. We're combining all of the engineering and hazardous waste and risk data with all of the climate vulnerability data. And we're bringing those together to now pick up the checklist and start to work through the checklist. As, as we've we've said, the checklist is really meant to be a guide. There's no there's no um, score that comes out at the end. It's just a logical way to organize uh, a pretty complex set of data um, in order to make a decision. But ultimately, the decision will be up to the project team and the LSP. Um, and we've we found that the guide is really helpful in at the organizational step. So next slide. Uh, as Marilyn mentioned, each page of the questionnaire is, is quite detailed, um, but we found that in general in working, developing the case study that most of the questions can be answered um, pretty clearly with the data that we just walked through and the standard data that you would have for an MCP site. So the first, uh, first page is where you are just gathering the general site information, the use for the site, um, the groundwater categories, what oil and hazardous materials was released, what are the impacted media, the current phase of, of the uh, MCP. So that these regulations are gonna come, come into, um, they're gonna come, in, come into application and sites are gonna be at various steps. So it's important to know what step your sites are, are in. Next slide, please. 
And then we get into the, the site status and climate impact risks. And in this case, you can answer yes, no, or not applicable. And looking at a few of the yeses for this site, the site um, does have an AUL. Um, would the climate impact substantially alter the fate and transport of site contaminants? As we as we said, the precipitation and flooding risks um, could lead to groundwater elevation changes and movement of the El Nepal. So yes, and portion of the site uh, is history of coastal flooding. There is a history of coastal flooding, and then we we go to the one uh, percent flood hazard area. So you'll see how the maps kind of relate directly to a lot of the questions. Next slide, please. And so uh, the next set of questions focus on exposure considerations. Again, the LSP in this case focused on the 30-year timeframe. And so we're answering these questions with respect to that timeframe. So we're using the 30-year maps, uh, keeping in mind in the back of our head that we've, we, we've seen what happens in 2050 and 2100. And so uh, in this case, you're asked to consider uh, whether or not the um, answer is low, medium, or high in terms of likelihood of impacts. And so you'll see some of the medium likelihood um, changing from upland to intertidal conditions. We saw that sea level rise will eventually impact the site, but um, it doesn't within the 2050 time range. Uh, in the next extreme weather event, we do see that um, flooding is a potential uh, hazard and that erosion is, is certainly likely. Tree uprooting, things like that could certainly happen. Precipitation, again, all or a portion of the site um, will be within a 1% flood hazard. Um, so that's given a high. But then you'll see that we have a number of other answers that are not applicable. So we don't, we don't look at... Um, temperature as being an impact in this site. Next slide, please. And then we're looking, next we're looking at the sensitivity considerations. And again, in this case, we're looking at a low, medium, and high designation. You'll see that we provide um, notes, a note area on the side. It's very helpful as you're going through to provide notes so that um, when somebody looks, looks down the road, they, they'll understand how you made the decisions that you made. Um, in this case, we're looking at, let's see, site-specific biological and environmental characteristics increase the risk of climate-enhanced transport. That's, in that case, it's not applicable, but the next one, climate-triggered substantial changes in groundwater elevation may impact the fate and transport. And that's really the primary vulnerability at this site is a change in the groundwater elevation that then impacts the mobility of the El Napo. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, and then we're looking at groundwater-specific changes. Um, you'll see again that there is, it feels like there's some repetition, but it's actually, um, we kind of thought about how the questions build on previous questions. So um, it, it, it all kind of makes sense when you get to the end and you pull back and look at the answers. But increases and decreases in the water levels at the hydrologic boundaries. Um, there's certainly a high high vulnerability to that. But really the other um, fate and transport questions, we didn't see a high vulnerability at this site. Next slide, please. And we finally, we get to the last step and based on the vulnerabilities that we um, identified, we think that it's likely that the site will be vulnerable to climate change. 
<laughs> we are projecting out into the future. We're not seeing impacts presently, so we didn't um, we didn't choose the will be in this case. We chose is likely. Next slide, please. And so the the way that this LSP kind of framed the conclusions, um, they stated that the regulatory closure is contingent on the determination of the stability of the LNAPL. Um, and that's defined by the MassDEP LNAPL simplified method. And then as you layer the climate vulnerability piece on top, um, because it's a coastal site with the potential for flooding due to sea level rise and extreme weather, as well as the potential for impacts from increased future precipitation, the LNAPL may not be stable in the future, and therefore the LSP concludes the site is likely vulnerable to climate change. And so that's kind of that's that's kind of the end point um, in this step in the process. As Marilyn said, though, there's a whole other step as far as mitigation and adaptation and that that will come. Um, down the line. And just I just want to as we're reaching the end here before we take some questions, I just want to reiterate the the power of the resilient um, MA website in particular. Um, the probabilistic flood predictions are are really kind of the cutting edge of climate vulnerability assessment right now. Massachusetts was at the forefront in developing those models for all the coastal areas. And I encourage you in, in any of your coastal work to um, explore those data sets because they are quite powerful. Um, so I think that concludes uh, our presentation and we're happy to answer any questions that folks may have. Thank you. So folks, I'm gonna stop the share um, and see if, if people have questions. If you um, would like a copy of the slides, I haven't confirmed this with the speakers, but I'm pretty sure you could email me and I can send them out. I think I know almost everybody who's on in the participant list. I know the recording will be available. Um, through the BBA's online learning center. But if you'd like a copy of the PDF of the slides, um, just shoot me an email. You know how to find me. I'm going to stop sharing now. I'll put uh, my colleagues up on the up on the screen. You're welcome to show yourselves. Uh, and let's see. It doesn't look like we have any open questions. So um, I'll start with a question. Um, so I know um, uh, because I was was involved that the Q&A will provide a lot of benefit to LSPs and project teams um, over really kind of how do you interpret it. What we've gone through here today was really related to the toolkit that's you know, largely technical, but lawyers should really know that it exists and is out there, uh, which is why we thought this program would be beneficial to lawyers. Ken, any insight on when the uh, Q&A might be available or published? I know it'll be before the regulations become effective for sure, but just curious as to what the latest information is on that, if you have any. Yeah, I was hoping it would have been available by now. Um, so hopefully, definitely, the, the regs go final on March 1st, so certainly by March 1st. But I mean, I was hoping it would be available in the, in the sooner time frame. And if, if not now, I'm looking at my, at my calendar. I mean, I'd like to think within the next couple of weeks. Um, it depends on it depends on a few things, but I know that, that uh, we, we may kick it back to the regions to have their staff look at it um, one last sure. time. I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's really up to 
to Liz Callahan to decide that, but it's it's 99% done. <laughs> so all right, soon, that's great. Soon. That's great news. So um, for Marilyn and Kathy, uh, um, I know. I predict, I don't know because nobody has put a Q&A in here, but I predict lawyers are wondering, okay, what do we do with Ted's conclusion that uh, from his case study that climate impact is likely? I know uh, it's very site specific and that sort of thing, but what kind of ideas would you have um, in terms of uh, how, how you think it should be addressed um, sort of going forward, would would you revise an AUL to have particular check-ins? Uh, what kind of what kind of things could could LSP do to comply with the MCP um, when you have that uh, climate vulnerability is likely? Just conceptually. Um, well, you know, some a few examples that. I have seen, um, and actually some of these go beyond um, beyond, beyond just waste site cleanup, but um, where uh, shoreline areas have been um, impacted by a remedy, you know, if you're if you're you know, doing construction or or excavation along a you know along a coastal area, um, then the, you know some of the some of the restoration plans are are designed to you know include additional armoring or select um, replacement species that are less vulnerable to temperature extremes. Um, I've seen ones where um, capping is part of the remedy um, and, and the you know the maintenance requirements and the and in some cases the thickness or elevation of the caps have been um, you know, modified to take the the you know greater rain events or um, higher coastal elevations into account um, in designing those. Um, so, you know, those are just just a couple of examples. Um, I know, um, Kathy, you mentioned ITRC has uh, a little bit more on mitigation than than what our our group came up with. You want to sort of touch on that a little bit? Or? Sure. And even before that, I, I think, you know, one of the things that, well, it, it does tie into the ITRC document, but one of the things is, is assessing vulnerability and mitigation. Really, it's a project cycle wide. So from start to finish. And so if you have a project mid, mid, you know, you're in the midst of, say, designing a remedy, um, wherever you are, really, it really makes, um, from a risk standpoint, um, and just a cost standpoint as well, really be thinking about this uh, and looking at it both in the short and long term. So, you know, if if you're all right, we've assessed that there there could be a climate vulnerability and we want to implement a remedy. So we need to take that into account in the phase three as we're doing, you know, remedy evaluation. Um, if we're in design, right, as, as Marilyn just gave some examples, you know, how would we try to mitigate that? Um, is it a short, shorter term remediation or a long term one? Um, and and so, in, just as an example, the EPA had a has a fact sheet out for pump and treat systems and um, a couple other I think sediment fact sheets on looking at vulnerability and what some mitigation measures are. Um, we have I have a pump and treat system that we've operated for years uh, and looking at um, we've gone through that and and actually looked at what those vulnerabilities may be. Is it high or low um, risk? 
and and really working with the client team to understand, um, you know, this is a potential outcome. Um, how likely is it to happen in the time frame that we're remediating? Um, so it's a lot of um, it's a lot of discussion and and just thinking about like the engineering side of it and and making a decision sooner or later how to address it. Uh, with respect to the ITRC, they do have a full list of best management practices um, to address and and for different re- remedy types as well. So it's a great resource. I'll also add that the um, the MVP program and the Coastal Resilience Grant programs are really investing in um, all kinds of adaptations. Um, and so I think that can be a rich resource of really kind of specific design elements that might be useful at sites that, that you can choose from. Um, every town is, is dealing with the MVP now, and it's entirely possible that your site falls within an MVP planning area where they might already be doing some um, resilience work that might impact your remedy. Oh, that's, yeah, that's very helpful to know. Um, kind of a follow-up question that's like put on the crystal ball. Do you think this um, sort of new re- MCP requirement might motivate some people to do a more fulsome cleanup initially so they don't actually have, so they can exit that chart early so they don't have to get to a place where they're in this consideration or were those folks already doing that, do you think? Any speculation think, about the future on that? I think like like Ted was saying, those maps are pretty powerful and those forecasting tools and it is pretty eye-opening when you look at them, you know, 20, 40, 50 years or so down the road and you see if your site's underwater, it, it, it should get your attention. And if you have something that's vulnerable to flooding, you know, with affecting the fate and transport, absolutely, I would think it would certainly affect the remedy. Um, at least it should. Yeah, I definitely think it's a conversation that you have, um, you know, with the client as, from our standpoint, you know, you these are your options and and looking at it from a, you know, cost and risk benefit discussion. 